Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we know you by revelation, that you make yourself known to us that we might know you, and we thank you that you have provincial, uh, pr principally revealed yourself to us by the merits and mercies of Jesus, our Savior. We ask now that you inspire us by your Holy Spirit to understand your word and to apply it to our lives through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. All right. Uh, and honestly, a lot to talk about this morning, so I'm going to try to um, go through this as thoroughly, but also as efficiently as I can. Um, I had told you all that there was a painting in the chapel at St. Andrews that, now this is not an invitation to join St. Andrews, this is just an observation of their chapel. Um, but this was painted by Marty Leonard's nephew, and it is glorious. You can see the glassy sea. Um, the New Jerusalem, the cherubim, the seraphim, the apostles, the martyrs, the four beasts around the throne, the um, rainbow, and we're going to get into a lot of this imagery today, so um, I'm going to go to the, the outline. We're going to review, do an overview, read chapters four and five, and then discussion of the chapters, but it's, it's a lot of monologue today because there's just a lot of symbolism, so um, I'll, I'll allow for questions as much as I can um, but let's dive into it. So if we recall chapter 1, chapter 1, especially verses 9 through 20, was the introduction of the vision into heaven, and that was the first revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation itself. Now, not the first revel of Jesus, and there's Jesus, of course, but in the book of Revelation, this is the first time Jesus is revealed in the book, and we also get the first glimpse into heaven. So this is back into chapter 1. Then chapters 2 and 3, we have the first directive from that vision, which is to write to the churches. And then we get letters, as we have said, to specific audiences with specific purposes to my, in mind in chapters 2 and 3. Those letters look back to Jesus. They're looking at particular circumstances, and they're looking forward to what we call the eschaton, which is the fulfillment of all things. So there's a lot of movement in the first three chapters that we've already covered. All of that stuff is recorded and on YouTube, so if you want to go back and look at it, you can, but it's pretty simple and straightforward. As we now get into chapters four and five, just to give a quick overview, we, we return to the heavenly vision. So we start with a heavenly vision. That heavenly vision ends up in a directive to write letters in chapters two and three. Now in chapters four and five, we're back into a heavenly vision and the imagery um, in the heavenly vision is, is drawn from and expanded upon things that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, Isaiah chapter 6, that well-known passage where Isaiah is, is, in a sense, he catches a vision of heaven and then he's commissioned out of that vision that he has. The one that I want to read to us is Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3. There's a lot of the reading this morning because it shows a, a, a pattern um, in the Old Testament that's repeated, in, and we're seeing that repetition in the New Testament. So if you know Ezekiel's chapter 1 through 3, it's about halfway through the Old Testament. And um, there's a vision of heaven similarly to Isaiah and a commission of, of a commissioning of Ezekiel that takes place. Um, so we go to Ezekiel chapter 1 in the 13th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles... By the Chebar Canal, the heavens were open, and I saw a vision of God on the fifth day of the month. It was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Chebar Canal. 
and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. And as I looked, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness around it, and fire flashing forth continually, and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings on the four sides they had human hands, and the four had their faces and wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. The four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. So there's this image of these four creatures that we see in Ezekiel that we're going to see again in Revelation here as we read that in just a minute. And then the other thing we see in Ezekiel, and I'm afraid it's just too much to read, but all of this image of of metal, but particularly a scroll. And if you know the prophet um, Ezekiel at all, you know he eats this scroll and it tastes bitter, but he's required to, in a sense, spit it out of his mouth. It's, a, it's the prophecy that he's given to, to speak to the people of Israel. So what I'm suggesting again is in the book of Revelation, um, this same interplay takes place that we see in the Old Testament imagery. And the interplay is this, the interplay of heaven and earth where something is revealed, something is written, and someone is commissioned, right? The, that pattern emerges in the Old Testament, and it's repeated in the New Testament. So now what I want to do is read um, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and then we'll get into the discussion of them. Again, there's a lot of imagery to talk about, so we'll see how much time we have to get through all of this. I'm sorry, Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3, very, very beginning of Ezekiel. If you want the two references from the Old Testament, it's Isaiah chapter 6 and Ezekiel chapters 1 through 3. That's, that's the imagery that's used for um, Revelation as well. So John begins in chapter 4, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were the twenty-four elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight." And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Pause there. What does that sound like? The, The Sanctus, right? Therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, Holy, 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 straight, straight out of that. Chapter uh, verse 9, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor, thanks to him who is seated on the throne, 
who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Chapter five. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals." And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down, fell down and worshiped. That's really powerful stuff. So let's just talk for a minute about the the broad sweep of what's going on here in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So the heavens are opened again to John, right, in a sense for for a second time, if you will. And what is the activity that we see happening here? They're worshiping, right? They're worshiping. And if you look at the trajectory of how the worship is taking place in chapters 4 and 5, it's it's really cool to see what's unfolding here because in chapter 4, you've got this activity of worship. You've got this cry of the Sanctus, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is to is to come. Worthy are you, Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So what's the emphasis of worship in chapter 4? Praise because of God's act in what? Creation, Creation, right? All of chapter 4 is extolling God in creation, and that's significant because then you enter into chapter 5 and you find this scroll, and no one on earth or under the earth or over the earth is able to what? They can't open it. Who's going to, like there's this desire in all of creation to open this scroll, but nobody has the authority and the power to do it, and then one stands up among them who is what? A lamb who appeared as though he was slain, 
And he's the one who's found worthy to open the scroll. So when you come to this next worthy are you to take the scroll, you have the act of God and salvation for you were slain and you ransomed a people from God from every tongue and tribe and nation. And then at the end, you've got the end of time to him on sit, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever. So, so the whole tone of chapters four and five is worship for God in creation, for worship of God in salvation, and worship of God till the end of time. And if you've never seen that before, it's a, it's a really cool pattern of the activity that's going on now in the heavens, even as we're worshiping him here on earth in the same way. So this gets really, really cool when you think about the imagery that we're about to talk about in Revelation. So let's dive into that. Um, So we're just going to go kind of verse by verse here, and I'm going to try to get through the imagery, all of it that we see here in chapters four and five. So if we go back to chapter four, verse one, Again, John's vantage point is not earth but heaven, right? He's seeing a vision of heaven. And that, that vision is similar to the vision that's in Isaiah. It's similar to the vision that's in Ezekiel. And it's a little more complete now. It's a little more expansive. The revelation has unfolded because these things have taken place on the earth. So he's got a little bit better picture than the Old Testament prophets did. So let's go into the teaching. What must take place after this? What is this? Well, he's referring back to a continuation of chapter 1, verse 19, when Jesus is first revealed. Remember, Jesus is revealed in chapter 119, and then letters are written. What must take place after this? The assumption is what must take place after the letters that are written? Well, worship, right? We write letters, we reveal God, and then we worship God. So it's, it's pretty cool to see how that continuity and that pattern is unfolding. So we get the first revel of Je- revelation of Jesus. Now we have another revel of revelation of Jesus, and the main theme of that revelation is worship, but it's also prophetic because there's an opening of the scroll that must take place before the full and final culmination of human history, right? That's an activity that is still in the process of unfolding as we know it in time. So then we come to chapter 2, and we see that there's a throne, and we see there is one who is seated on it. Um, that one is not specifically identified. I mean, we, we know it's God, of course, and the closest reference we have is uh, in, in verse 8 of chapter 4 that it is the Lord God Almighty, but it's not saying whether it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit or the Father with the Son seated on the right hand. It doesn't, it doesn't get that specific. We just know that there is one who is seated on it who is God, and specifically in verse 8, the Lord God Almighty. Then in verse 3, we have this imagery of Jasper and Carnelian. Um, These are images of royalty that suggest maybe the father because there's no physical description. So the closest we're going to be able to uh, identify the one who is seated on the throne is probably as the father because we have this description of royalty, but it's not not physical per se. It's it's imagery, um, evoking imagery. So then we go on to the rainbow, and what does that suggest? covenant with? Who did he make the covenant with? Noah, right? So you've got this rainbow. And, you know, we know that God's covenants continue forever and ever and amen. So we're drawing on the Old Testament imagery of God's covenant with Noah. And if you go back to the covenant of Noah, we've taught on this before here, the fundamental idea of the covenant with Noah is that God preserves righteousness and he punishes wickedness. 
So, yeah, of course the rainbow would be a central image in the end of all things because wickedness will not be in eternity and righteousness will be in eternity. So you get this symbolism of the completion or the culmination of that covenant with Noah being represented in the vision that John is given here. The rainbow, the covenant with Noah. God punishes wickedness and he preserves righteousness. He finds Noah to be a righteous man, so he preserves Noah and his offspring through the flood. Then we go on to verses 4 through 24, and we have these thrones and these elders and these white garments and these golden crowns. Again, this is drawing from Old Testament imagery, most likely in First Chronicles, where there are orders of priests around the temple in Old Testament Judaism that relate to the sacrifice and the worship under the Old Covenant. But it draws from that imagery, but more likely there are 24 thrones, so you all probably know this. Who are those thrones representing? 12 tribes of Israel and 12 apostles, right? So again, it's an image of completion. You've got 12 tribes of Israel, 12 apostles. Again, we're looking into heaven. We're looking to the fulfillment of things, and you're seeing a sense of completion. The covenant with Noah is completed. The, the, the totality of peoples who are in the kingdom of God are complete, and it's an interesting image because it imagines a heavenly court using earthly images in the Jewish apocalyptic writings, the heavenly beings uh, would stand and the deity would be seated. However, in the Roman tribunal, the emperor would be seated and would be surrounded by senators. So you've got this standing and this falling. A lot of our stand, sit, and kneel that we do in worship um, is not necessarily directly drawn from this, but it, 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 it um, mimics it. It imagines it in those kinds of ways. Worship is a very active thing. It's not just our minds, it's our bodies and our souls, right? That's why we're active in worship, because we're not just worshiping God with our minds, we're worshiping with him, him with our bodies as well. So they are dressed in white garments, which represent purity. They have golden crowns, which represent royalty. And then you get these flashes of lightning, these peals of thunder, these torches of fire, and these spirits of God. So the lightning and the thunder evokes imagery from the Old Testament again where God reveals his glory <clears throat> excuse me, on Mount Sinai and it is the um, imagery of the, of the uh, Ten Commandments because it comes out of chapter 19 verse 16 where God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. So again, you've got another covenant imagery represented here as well uh, with the lightning and the thunder. The torches and the fire, um, it's interesting because they are... They are um, imagined in chapter 1, verse 4, but now they are specifically identified as the seven spirits of God. Remember, the seven stars are the angels, so it's not referring to the angels, but it's referring to these seven spirits, which is a little bit hard for us to get our mind wrapped around, and we can't say that we fully have it, but we do know the number seven is a, is a number that signifies what? Completion, right? So it's interesting because th this is where scholarship has gone with this. If you look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 2 and 3, there, are, uh, there is a spirit of wisdom, a spirit of understanding, a spirit of counsel, a spirit of might, a spirit of knowledge, and a spirit of the fear of the Lord. So there are six spirits, in that sense, represented in Isaiah. And the seventh spirit, we would say, is who? The Holy Spirit, right? The, the spirit of completion, the spirit of perfection. So again, you're drawing plausibly on some images from the Old Testament being completed in the New Testament and perfected in heaven. 
So that's just one way that scholarship has looked at these seven spirits because it's not really clear um, who or what they are exactly, but plausibly, right, from Isaiah chapter 11, there are these six spirits that are given under the old covenant. The Holy Spirit is given under the new covenant, and so you have this number seven that that represents completion and, and fulfillment going on again here. So we talked about worship, and then in chapter 4, verse 6, we get to the sea of glass that's like crystal. It draws again from the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 24, um, or Exodus chapter 24, and again in Ezekiel chapter 1. And this sea of glass, right, it is both a floor of heaven and, and a ceiling for the created order. We talk about worship in church on Sunday morning being that thin place between heaven and earth, because we're, the church is gathered around the word and the sacraments, and this is the closest, in a sense, that we get to heaven on this earth. So we see the sea of glass, and you can see how it's a little bit translucent in this image. People are looking down into that sea of glass, so there's this interplay of activity between heaven and earth going on, and we're going to see more of that as we get to chapter 5, and I'll explain that in just a minute. So that's what the, um, the sea of glass represents And it also represents tranquility, it represents peace, you know, the peace of God that is fulfilled in um, all of eternity. Now we get to the four living creatures, and it draws from Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel chapter 1, as we referenced just a minute. It says that they're full of eyes. What might that imagine for us? If you're full of eyes, you have the ability to see a lot, almost an omnipresence, right? So what it's saying is whatever we're going to say about these, these four living creatures, there is, a, there is, in a sense, an attribute of divinity about them. They have the ability to see beyond the natural. It's a, it's a supernatural type of sight that's represented by their multiplicity of eyes. And you all know this most likely that, that these um, creatures are represented in Christian art as, as the four gospels. So, so kind of naturally, right? These These beasts have these eyes. There's sort of an omnipresence about them. There's a divine attribute about them. So naturally, they have been tied to the Gospels. One one of the church fathers, Irenaeus, um, he was the one who originated the idea. Augustine also has a version, and Jerome's version is the most common. So if you want to go look up the one that Irenaeus talks about and the one that Augustine talks about, Augustine of Alexandria, not Augustine of Canterbury. But the one that Jerome uses is the most common And here's the interesting connection between the Gospels and the four beasts. So Jerome says that Matthew is the man because Matthew begins with the human genealogy of Jesus, right? And then Mark is the lion because Mark begins with John the baptizer roaring in the desert with this prophetic type of power. Luke is the ox because Luke has a big emphasis on the temple sacrifice And that John is the eagle because the divine word both comes from and returns to heaven. So you get this sort of heavenly creature in flight. So make of that what you will, but it's it's pretty neat how Christian imagery has tried to make the best understanding out of things that we can that are still somewhat mysteries to us, but there it is. And then finally, in verse 411, you get the response of worship by elders that reflects God in creation. So we've made it through chapter four. Maybe I can pause for a minute here, and then we'll have some time to to go into chapter five. Are there any questions or comments about things that we've 
And there's a lot of imagery. I, I, I get that. So it kind of makes your eyes cross and feel like you're drinking out of a fire hose at the same time. But um, any questions or comments about what we've covered so far? So again, if you're going to think about chapter four, think about creation, right? Think about culmination. Think about completion. Think about the interplay of activity between heaven and earth that's envisioned even now because chapter 5 is going to a little bit theologically slicey and dicey from certain points of view when we talk about um, church history, when we talk about certain doctrines, when we talk about Reformation theology, and uh, why don't we just take the deep dive and see what happens. So we get into chapter 5, verse 1, and we see one who's seated on the throne with the scroll and the seven seals. Again, this is a drawing from Ezekiel and, and Daniel. The context suggests, of course, that this is a book of destiny, that events of the end times are recorded in this book. Others have evoked the imagery that this is, in a sense, kind of a last will and testament of Jesus Christ, who his people are and what it is that they will inherit. I think both of those things are fair types of ideas. But again, there's this anticipation by all of creation that they want this scroll opened and they know they're not able to do it, which again points to the glory of Jesus Christ. So we get into verse 2, the worthiness to open the scroll. Who can open the scroll? Who can break the seals? Again, there's this desire to open it because they want to know how it all ends. He observes that only the lion of the tribe of Judah is worthy to do it, which of course is Jesus. And so arises this lamb who is standing yet slain, has seven horns and seven eyes. What are those images? Again, completion, fulfillment, you know, seven eyes, the, the perfection of eyes, the seven horns, the, the perfection of triumph. Seven horns, seven eyes, and immediately as Jesus arises, there's this response of worship, and this time the response of worship is the response of worship in the act of Jesus' salvation. We see that in uh, verse 9, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The idea being, of course, that nobody else can do this. You can do this. So we worship you because of your worthiness to open the scroll and make all things known to us. So arises the Lamb and the response of worship in the completion of all things, now, here's where we're going to get into thorny weeds, and I want to focus in on specifically Revelation chapter 5 and verse 8, these bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So let's back up just a bit to verse 8, the beginning of verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, meaning Jesus, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sing this new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. There's a lot of debate in modern Christianity about this doctrine that we call invocation of saints. Everybody familiar with that? Yes, yes you are, so you're not raising your hand. <laughs> you're kind of familiar with it. So the idea of the invocation of saints is that we can ask the saints to pray for us and pray with us, not just the saints on earth, but the saints who are in heaven. And if you think about the first thousand years of the church, 
that was an unquestioned idea. It wasn't necessarily codified as, a, as an explicit doctrine per se. It was just practiced as part of the piety of the church. You can look at the East, the Church of the East, the Church of the West, they all do it, and it was not a big deal. The Reformation comes along, and particularly you get Luther, you get Calvin, and you get the Anglicans, you get the 39 Articles, and a lot of questions are raised about whether or not invocation of saints is a valid doctrine of the church or not. Everybody with me so far? So it's interesting because over the time of, of history, over that thousand years, and especially in, through the Dark Ages into the Middle Ages, you get this particular development of a doctrine within the doctrine that, that ties into purgatory and, and the ability to get out of purgatory at a shorter period of time. And, and, and sort of the idea becomes that the saints who have passed on into eternity have accrued merits, and we can appeal through those saints by the merits that they have attained in passing into eternity that help us on our path to salvation. And I'm going to say to you, that's an erroneous idea, right? So, so we scrap that. But that's part of why the reaction of the reformers against the idea of the invocation of saints, because they were crying out, in a sense, against an abuse of a doctrine that had accrued onto an earlier doctrine of the church that just... We, we can pray with and ask the saints to pray for us. Is this as clear as mud so far? Let me pause there. Any questions or comments about this idea? So I'm going to suggest that it is, and I'm going to suggest that this is the scripture that, that says that it is, because again, let's go back to what the text tells us. These elders are holding a harp, and they have with them golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So I'm going to suggest that in heaven, there is an awareness of our prayers that, that, that reaches more than just God. Now, what do we know? We know that God is the one who answers our prayers. So I'm not saying, as, as, and I'm just going to use this as, a, as an example because we're all aware of it, we're not saying, for example, that this idea that's come up in the Roman Catholic Church from time to time about Mary and is she a co-mediator of salvation and all of those kinds of things, which is a little bit off the central point anyway. What I'm simply saying is that this verse is very suggestive to us that God is aware of our prayers and, and there are heavenly beings, including the saints who have gone before us, who are also aware of our prayers. Is that fair? Everybody with me so far? Steve? Yeah, yeah, so f- it doesn't ever define who they are other than the, the 24 elders who, who are seated around the throne, who are, again, representative figureheads of the, of the totality of those who are going to be saved. So if we're going to define saints specifically, yeah, we're going to say a godly person who entered into heaven. A hierarchy, sure. And... Um, they would say those, so yes and no. Um, they would say those are, th- those saints who have, let's say, a capital S by their name are those who are especially noteworthy in Christian history, like an athlete enters into a hall of fame, right? But all Christians, they would equally say, are saints. We're, we're all set being sanctified. We're all set apart from God. And so there is a sense in which you know, let's say your grandfather has gone on into eternity and, and 
you can ask him to pray with you, to, to pray on your behalf under this idea of, of invocation of saints. We might say, you know, Paul, pray for me because I'm, I'm struggling with conversion. And we have Paul on the road to Damascus. And that becomes an icon, an image, an understanding for us that, you know, because Paul was per- converted in such a dramatic way, there's, there's an identification with him in that way. But it, you know, so it, it's, it's left a little bit loosely. In, intentionally so, right? Um, intentionally so. So everybody still with me? Still clear as mud? Questions about this? So again, the reformers are primarily reacting against the abuse of this idea, but they go all the way to say, just don't do it. Jesus is our mediator and advocate. We pray to him alone. We pray through him alone and leave the whole idea of invocation of saints out. But the question is this. The question, there are two questions. One, what is it that actually happens when we pass from the temporal to the eternal? Are we dead in the way we know death on this side of the veil? Or are we alive? And the other question that's the corollary question to that is, if we are alive, and I'm going to argue that we are, when we're in eternity, can, can we hear those who are here still in this temporal life? And again, I'm going to lean on this scripture that's suggestive of the idea that they can hear us. Now, that doesn't mean they're examining everything that we're doing. That just means that when we say, Hail Mary, full of grace, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death, amen, she can hear us and is praying with us that we will be saved through Jesus Christ, right? That's where that idea comes from, and that's all that idea is meant to articulate. But as to whether or not we are dead, in the sense that we know dead, or we're alive, I'm going to argue these ideas. Jesus says in Mark 12, 27, that he's the God of the living. Jesus says specifically to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And all of the witness that we see in the book of Revelation here is that the saints are alive and not dead. So if we're going to answer the first question about whether they're dead as we know dead or alive in eternity, I'm going to suggest that the witness says that they are alive in eternity. And it's hard for us to wrap our minds around because we are bound by time. But eternity is not bound by time. They, they are free from the shackles of this earthly body and they're free from the bondages of time. So there's a different reality altogether going on in eternity that's happening right now in our temporal world. So are they alive? I would argue the weight in the witness of Scripture says they are alive. Can they hear us? I'm going to argue that the early church for the first thousand years says yes, and that this is a central Scripture under the idea of saying yes, that there is an awareness in eternity of our saints. And if you want to read Anglican theologians, C.S. Lewis says I've got no problem with talking to those who have gone before us and asking them for our prayers. So even those who are more of an evangelical or reformed mind who want to lean on Lewis will also take issue with him on this point because they think, well, we can't ask the saints who have gone before us to pray for us or to pray with us. And so finally, I'll leave that idea here. I like this. Um, there's another word that's been talked about. So if, we, if the early idea was invocation, and that's still a valid thought, asking the saints for prayers like a friend, there's another idea that came up as a result of these Roman Catholic operations that have to do with graces and merits, and it's called advocation. 
advocation of saints. And that is asking the saints to pray with us, but not praying to them as the medieval Roman Catholic Church would have more uh, specifically articulated it. So if you want to think about a healthy way to ask, uh, to have the conversation, advocation of saints is another fair, valid way to talk about the idea that Anglican Bishop William Forbes, who lived in the 16th and 17th centuries, talked about, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Questions or comments, because I know people can be very divided on their spirituality. Anglicans have always talked about this as an act of piety. Um, so so let, me give you, let me give you how we talk about theology, right? There's dogma, the things that are the non-negotiables of the faith, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, that's the dogma of the church. The doctrine is the next layer under dogma, and that's an idea like original sin that St. Augustine first articulated, which means that we don't exactly know how the idea of original sin works, but here's a really good way to talk about it. But because we can't fully know that that's exactly how the idea works, we're going to talk about it as a doctrine, not a dogma, right? Then we're going to talk about the devotion of the church, and that's where Anglicans talk about this idea of invocation of advoca- or advocation of saints, that it's a, that it's a um, reasonable uh, act of piety to invoke or advoke the saints because it's been done throughout church history, right? It's only the reformers of the last 500 years who have said no, and even some of those reformers are of a split mind of the idea. So we're not going to elevate this idea to doctrine or certainly not dogma, but it's an act of, of piety or devotion that we can talk about that's reasonable because of the, the trajectory of Scripture and the weight of church tradition. And then the fourth layer, dogma, doctrine, discipline, devotion. I mean, dogma, doctrine, devotion, discipline, that, that if what you're doing in, in these first three layers is just out of bounds altogether, that's where church discipline comes in and says, we're not doing that. Like, that's, that is completely out of bounds from Christian thought and practice throughout time and space. So, yes, Jesus was the Son of God. He's not just fully human. He's not just fully divine. He's both. So if you're going to talk about him in one way or the other, you know, as only divine or only human, then you, are, you have put yourself outside of the discipline of the way the church believes and practices. Yes, sir. That's right. So that's the first reality we accept. Paul talks about to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul also talks about the imperishable body that we will have. So the spiritual and the physical will be rejoined in all of eternity. If you think about Jesus Christ right now, he is not now a spiritual being. He is a spiritual and a physical being. That's what he evidenced for us in the resurrection when he showed up for 40 days after his resurrection and walked the earth. I'm going to leave it there with this great big mess to chew on. Okay, one more, Karen. Only here do we get the idea most explicitly talked about in Revelation. We do not see it in the disciples, but we also have to say that wasn't their primary concern in in what they were doing. So I'm I'm not trying to split the baby. I'm just saying that's what what Scripture gives us. Okay, one more. Yeah, many of you have heard me say that when we saw Margie's dad die, we saw the angels enter the room and lift his spirit out of his body. We, we saw that happen. So there have been many, many accounts at death of people being aware of the spiritual reality. Let me close this with prayer so that we can go eat Connie's food and she will smile at us. <laughs> Lord, thank you for feeding us with your word, uh, for feeding us with the fellowship that we're about to enjoy and ultimately feeding us in the Eucharistic feast. 
We ask you to continue to bless our time and our conversations. We prepare for worship in Jesus' name. Amen.